Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet award-winning Charlotte poets Christopher Davis and Allison Hutchcraft, authors of the poetry books Oath, published by Main Street Rag, and Swale, published by New Issues Press with Western Michigan University. Chris and Allison both teach at University of North Carolina, Charlotte. David Trinidad says there is a sharp, steel-like edge to the lines in Christopher Davis's poems. So finely wrought are they and attuned to the brutality of fact, the limits of human interaction. Paisley Rectal says Hutchcraft examines the delicate balance between rapture and ravishment in poems as ambitious as they are beautiful. We start the show with Chris reading his poem, Examine Her Life, and Allison reading her poem, I've Written Myself into a Tropical Glow. Examine Her Life. Her mother's kitchen stank like a barnyard, embarrassed by her cud-chewing father, feeling unloved, she swore she'd be perfect. Married, she wrapped furniture in plastic. Exercising under her calendar, she flip-flopped up and down a reeled-in trout. Eventually, once she proved doomed to fail, her husband getting calls from men all night, her menopause, her diabetes, chips, cheap wine, divorce, her youngest son stabbed to death. Her ideal broke. She breathed. She blinked. She watched the news. Trapped in a wrecked, infested house, she had designed herself for so much more. A victim's advocate, she pressured courts to grant parents of murdered children rights to ask the killers why, rage, mock, forgive. Her unselfconsciousness became her grace. She saw she was simply alive, laughing, accusing, crying, mute, comprehending love helping others feel before dying. I have written myself into a tropical glow after Darwin. 
The sea is laced in phosphorescence, little galaxies afloat in the swell. Insects click their invisible tongues to wake the silken light, volcano fire and lizard belly, dusky skies softening, bats unfolding, descending as the barometer drops, stars pinned to their velvety seats. And the air scented, swallowed, insects falling into the open mouths of waxy orchid blossoms, spiny bromeliads, water pooling into sticky pitcher plants, tendrils curling, frogs bleeding their morning songs, the bleat that rises, billowing, filling the air like a flag or swelling like a sail. To not think of myself even for an hour, but of fireflies lighting the understory and everything tinged with this tropical glow, haloed, hallowed, steeped in birdsong, the palm fronds pressing against the sky as if this world were glass and breath alone could make it flame. Hey listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. Oh, and speaking of audiobooks, and now that uh, Christmas is around the corner, I'd like to uh, let you know that my three books in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy are now uh, on audiobooks, and you can find all three wherever you like to get your audiobooks, and also at Libro.fm. I'm really excited about the fact that I connected uh, with uh, an actor in uh, L.A. who is the narrator for this series. His name is uh, Bill A. Jones. He's best known for uh, his role as Rod Remington from Fox TV's Glee. But he's also appeared in a number of other uh, shows, Days of Our Lives, The King of Queens, The Drew Carey Show, and much, much more. He's really a funny guy, and he's, uh, he's a singer as well. And he does justice to this series that's a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street. You can listen to all three audiobooks uh, wherever you like to get your audiobooks, or you can get the first ebook uh, for free by signing up for our email list or pretty much on any retail site now. And the uh, other two books, if you want to listen on audiobook, you get uh, those two for the price of one if you join Libra.fm with that promo code Charlotte Reader, all one word. With that said, I've got a little bit more about the author and then the interview, more readings, uh, and the writing life segment. So hope you enjoy. Christopher Davis is the author of four books of poetry, The Tyrant of the Past and The Slave of the Future, winner of the 1988 Associated Writing Programs Award, The Patriot, published by University of Georgia Press in 1998, 
A History of the Only War, published by Four Way Books in 2005, and Oath, published by Main Street Rag Press in 2020. He holds a BA from Syracuse University and an MFA from the University of Iowa's Writers' Workshop. He's a professor in the English Department of the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Allison Hutchcraft is the author of the poetry collection Swale, published by New Issues Press in October 2020, and named the 2019 Editor's Choice by New Issues Poetry and Prose. Her poems have appeared in Boulevard, The Cincinnati Review, Crazy Horse, The Gettysburg Review, Kenyon Review, The Missouri Review, and The Southern Review, among other journals. She's been awarded an Artist Fellowship from the North Carolina Arts Council and a Regional Artist Project Grant from the Arts and Science Council with the City of Charlotte and Mecklenburg County. She teaches poetry and creative writing at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Allison, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Landis. It's uh, great to be here with you and Chris. Yeah, Chris, welcome. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, and congratulations uh, to both of you on the publication of your uh, poetry books. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so listeners, what we've got planned today is going to be a lot of fun. We've got lots of poetry, a lot of poetry readings, and conversation about poetry. But first, we're going to talk with uh, uh, Allison and Chris uh, about their paths and how they got uh, from there to here. So Chris, uh, since you read first, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about your journey that landed you as a teacher at uh, University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Uh, what was it that uh, led to that? Well, I uh, grew up in Southern California and uh, was fortunate to have uh, parents who supported me a great deal in my uh, uh, creativity. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, I, when I went to uh, college as an undergraduate, um, I had a wonderful uh, mentor and creative writing teacher, Jory Graham. She was very young and uh, uh, enthusiastic new teacher and very, very encouraging. And uh, I had taken creative writing workshops earlier uh, with a, uh, a gentleman who had been a radio scriptwriter, uh, Norman Corwin. And so I felt very grounded in, um, you know, my early attempts to be a poet. And so uh, it was a natural progression to uh, go from that to getting an MFA. And uh, then there were a couple of years of instability. And then finally, I came to uh, my, my first job was in Murray, Kentucky, in West Kentucky. Uh, and um, then when my first book was uh, accepted, I came to Charlotte. All right. So, Allison, uh, what about your journey? How did you end up in uh, Charlotte? Um, in some ways, it's uh, similar to Chris's journey. Um uh, both Chris and I grew up in Southern California, so um, not maybe like an hour away from each other. Um, but uh, I didn't at all think I would be a poet. Um, I always wanted to be a writer, and I was, of course, a big reader. Um, but I discovered poetry later in college. Um, uh, I went to a small college called Lewis and Clark up in Portland, Oregon, um, which was a really beautiful place and studied briefly with uh, the poet Mary Shebist, who is um, brilliant and incredibly generous as a teacher and just a fabulous poet. Um, and certainly she she sort of opened me up to this to this whole world and this whole way of sort of making your life around poems, um, reading them and wanting to write them. And so like, like Chris, then I went to graduate school. Um, I went uh, to school in the Midwest 
And then from there, ended up here in Charlotte. So it's been an eastward movement um, since since growing up in California. Yeah. So what were your impressions of Charlotte when you arrived? Because you're coming from the West Coast. You mm-hmm. come to Charlotte. Chris, how about you, starting with you? Uh, when I first got to Charlotte, I was just so uh, surprised and happy to see such a luscious uh, floral atmosphere. I came uh, it, for my uh, job interview at the very beginning of March. And so I saw spring kind of emerging and it was just so beautiful. I really was just stunned. And my first thought was, um, this looks like a Wallace Stevens poem. Wallace Stevens, probably my favorite American poet. And uh, his poems are full of color and uh, pictorial excitement. And Charlotte really looked like that. So I just thought this looks like a really beautiful place. Uh, to live. And it was kind of a smaller New South City, but a small place, somewhat like the college towns that I was used to living in. And so I was excited. My first teaching experience had been in Murray, Kentucky, which is not really the South. Um, And so to go deeper into the South was very uh, exciting to me. And so, well, yeah, if you have you lose your job at uh... UNC Charlotte, the Chamber of Commerce will probably want you to uh, talk to them about, <laughs> about Charlotte. Uh, Allison, when did you come to Charlotte? Um, I came here in, um, I moved here in August of 2013. Um, and my first visit was just a couple months earlier. Um, I flew out with my with my partner to, um, to find an apartment. And my first impression was also very, very lush. Um, it was the height of summer. The trees were enormous, so tall and full, and the cicadas were going wild. And it was it was hot as can be, you know. So um, it was a, a, a first impression of kind of great extremes. The heat, the lushness, felt tropical, like Chris described. Um, and I just love it. Our our apartment is sort of on the second floor, surrounded by trees. So I always felt like I was sort of in a tree house since moving here. Um, And maybe that's also why there are just a lot of trees happening in my poems, Um, but it made quite an impression. Yeah, yeah, and I grew up in Charlotte, so I take some of this for granted, but when I go other places uh, that don't have the tree cover, Mm -hmm. you know, I miss it and I come back and, you know, I love walking through the neighborhoods with the trees that line the streets and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's, that's a nice thing to say about Charlotte. Uh, well, let's do this. We're going to talk about your books today. You're going to read from them. Um, let's start, Allison, with you and talk about Swale for just a moment. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, um, we're going to kind of go through some of the themes of the books and talk about the books themselves. But uh, first of all, let's start with the title, Swale. Right. Um, swale is a word that I have long loved. Um, I like the sound of it. Um, it's sort of strangeness to sort of, to me, suggests something about water, but, um, it's not a very common word. Um, it primarily means a kind of marshy place where land and water are mixing and meeting. Um, but it also has some less common, um, meanings as well, including, shade or a depression or a cool place, the cold, and even a very old usage um, as a verb, it can mean to move or sway from side to side. Um, So in the book, Swale, um, there's a lot of moments of land and water meeting and mixing, 
um, and often becoming confused. Um, so for instance, sailors at sea would hallucinate the ocean as a field. Um, speakers on land would also sort of long for the water and um, wish for it. Um, old ancient forests fall into the ocean thousands of years ago um, from shifting tectonic plates and then um, suddenly reemerge again with erosion and, and time passing by. So um, I'm interested in that blurring and confusion. And um, to me, uh, to me, that blurring captures something I think of human experience too, where um, sometimes intense emotion can feel radically disruptive, where you're not sure what is around you, where the land is, where the water is, um, kind of a dissociation between um, mind and body as there might be um, a mixing of land and water. So, so, so Allison, what, uh, what informs this work in your personal life? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this, this attraction to landscapes and the natural world, um, something you grew up with, something you visited, something you experienced? Absolutely. Um, I've always been really drawn um, to landscapes, to being outside. Um, And even though there's a lot of water in the book, um, I love being by the ocean. Um, I didn't necessarily go and see the ocean very much as a child. Um, But I often went into the mountains. Um, I grew up uh, in a, t- a city, small city called Pasadena near LA, and it's just below the foothills. Um, so I would spend um, a lot of my youth um, running and hiking up in those hills. And I just, even to this day, when I go back, it, it puts me into this space that is more alert. I feel more awake, alive, um, but also contemplative there. Um, so and landscape has always just really been important. Um, when I studied up in Oregon and lived and worked in Portland, um, whenever I could get to the beach, whenever I could get to the mountains, it always had such an effect on me. Um, and that's such a city where it feels like the natural world is encroaching in upon the urban life. Um, there's so many trees there, very different from Charlotte, um, more evergreens, um, but it's a it's a beautiful place. Yeah, it's beautiful country out there. the the uh, The seascape and uh, the beaches are a little bit different, uh, a little <laughs> than they are on the East Coast. Uh, you know, with the big logs that come down the big rivers and end up in the ocean, and end up on the shore. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's shift a minute, uh, uh, Chris. Uh, let's talk about the title of your book, Oath. Uh, being a former lawyer, I, I think I might have seen one thing in that, but I'm sure there's something else that's uh, coming coming to the fore here in that. Talk about the title, Oath. Well, I wanted to use a title that really kind of emphasized the vocal element. I think of my poems as being very um, musical in a way and very sort of voice oriented as well as being imagistic. And so the title seemed appropriate in that sense. Uh, But actually, it has a deeper uh, meaning, really, in terms of the book. there's a, a very influential uh, American poet who's a very experimental, John Ashbery. And uh, his second book of poetry is his most experimental, and it's called uh, The Tennis Court Oath. And um, 
the the title poem in my book sort of has buried references to that book, but um, I wanted to, I don't know if anyone would ever understand this if, if I weren't saying it, uh, I wanted to sort of um, indicate in some way uh, that uh, my poems are, in my mind, related to his work, although they're very different formally and not experimental. <laughs> Um, but, um, so all those kind of came together in the choice of the title. Yeah. And your work here, uh, in this book, Oath, uh, you're exploring a lot of, uh, themes that involve family. Yes. Right? Yes. In fact, the opening read, uh, involved your mother. Let's, let's talk about that for just a minute. Uh, maybe you can use that to, to talk a little bit about what you're exploring in this book. Yes. Um, I think of this book as being really a continuation of my previous books, really my whole writing life. Um, and, uh, so, uh, I, uh, had a lot of, uh, dramatic family experiences when I was young. Um, my, my younger brother was murdered when he was 15 and I was 18 and my parents had a very dramatically terrible marriage. Uh, my father was gay at a time when, uh, you know, it's coming from the sort of pre Stonewall era, uh, very complicated. And so all of that affected me very much. And at the same time, I was like so many teenagers, I was just uh, very much in love with the arts, music, especially uh, very engaged in all of that. And um, when I discovered poetry, uh, the, the modernist poets, T.S. Eliot, Wallace Stevens, all those poets were so uh, what people read and and it made a very, I made a very easy connection between my aesthetic uh, interests and excitement and that kind of poetry. Um, and sort of the generation that I grew up in was very much influenced by what we call the confessional poet, Sylvia Plath. And um, I, I liked that poetry a lot, but it wasn't my favorite. What I really liked was the, uh, the poetry of poets like Eliot and Stevens, and then a lot of really wonderful poetry and translation. And so all of those things to, came together. Um, the this dramatic family experience, um, what, uh, what I was feeling about arts in general, and then those, uh, those poetic influences. Yeah, it's it's like you're doing um you you're you're really diving into some difficult life experiences that your mother went through in this first poem and then you're you know, you're you're supporting how she sort of came through that to some extent by becoming an advocate and uh finding her grace toward the end. Yeah, I wrote this poem um uh after she passed away and I felt happy that I was able to write an elegy for my wonderful mother who had such a difficult life. And then I thought, oh, it's only a little poem compared to the largeness and the um, the sort of tragic and victorious uh, dimensions of her life. But I thought, well, that's the best I can do. <laughs> yeah, no, it was very, it was very, it was very nice. And uh, so, Allison, your opening poem that you read, I've written myself into a tropical glow. Uh, where did you first find yourself in a tropical glow? <laughs> right. I actually um, found myself in one through reading. And um, what I find so fascinating is um, how the title, which is a quotation um, from Darwin, 
Um, he wrote in a letter to his sister when he was about 22, I've written myself into a tropical glow. He also was sort of brought into this state, um, this kind of ecstatic um, euphoria through reading. Um, he was anticipating a planned voyage to the Canary Islands, and um, yet he wasn't there yet, right? Um, so he was reading a lot about the tropics. He was immersing himself in the naturalist Alexander von Humboldt's um, descriptions of South America, um, but he hadn't yet gone to the Canary Islands. He was, he was not at all in a tropical place. Um, he was just reading about it. And so I found that really fascinating too, um, because although Charlotte, you know, it's very lush, it's not quite the tropics um, and wasn't quite what I was imagining here um, when thinking about the poem. And so I, I, I guess I'm really interested in how much imagination and longing for place and thinking about place um, can create a kind of uh, emotional state, um, kind of, it's something that I, I recognize in myself that I'm often enthralled by the idea of a landscape, um, one that I might come across through reading about it or remembering being in a landscape. Um, I find that I can write a lot more about California and Oregon having not been there for a while. You know, it kind of occupies a space in my imagination and, and, I, and I can go to that. Well, you, need, you really draw us in from the beginning with this image of the phosphorescence. Uh, mm. The sea is laced with it. Little galaxies afloat in the swell. I mean, if you've ever been on the water at night or early in the morning, you could see that. You get that visual. Yeah. It really yeah. pull, pulls you into very almost a meditative kind of environment. Uh, mm -hmm. Surreal to some extent, I think. Uh, all right, well, that's great. Let's move on to some more poetry here. Um, Allison, we're going to start with you this time. And uh, I believe the poem is Callenture. Calenture, yes, um, which is an, uh, a maybe not very well-known term. Um, it describes a kind of mind-body sickness that afflicted sailors at sea. Um, it's related to scurvy, but its um, effects are more psychological rather than physical. And um, sailors who were experiencing calenture would um, hallucinate the open ocean as a field or meadow and become very obsessed with wanting to be in that meadow and would very often jump out into the sea um, to their deaths. So um, on that happy note, on you that can, happy uh... note. <laughs> um, so, th so this is Callenture. I shouldn't like to think of them, but I do. The men who spent their days as sailors pacing the decks of their ships who sometimes would get a certain kind of sickness that made the sea a field. How much the mind wants land after so much stretch of water, wants the most landish thing, a field thick with witch grass or blonding wheat, a meadow silent but for the ticking of insects, it must have felt like bliss, that first sight of the field so wide, like a yawn that never closes. 
Some say ships carried tufts of earth on board to bathe those afflicted. Or when they finally reached shore, pressed the sailors' faces down into the dirt. From Calentura, Spanish for fever, those affected had a fierce look. I know I shouldn't like to think of those men, but what it must have felt like. The field green and glinting in that sun. The few seconds in the air before they drop into those reedy waves, the unshorn grasses, their bare, unsinkable sway. Allison, that's beautiful. I, I'm just curious, have you ever been deep sea fishing? Have you ever been on a boat where you're far from land and, and you can't see anything but the water around you? I have been on boats, but I have not been that far from land. Uh, okay. I clearly want to have been. <laughs> I don't know why this this um, this feeling felt so much like I had experienced it before. Um, but alas, I have not been far enough on a boat. <laughs> Oh, well, Chris, your next uh, poem here that you're going to do uh, from, from your book, Oath, is, uh, I think, still on the family theme. Tell us a little bit about uh, To Have a Choice. This is really a poem about my father's life, and I think of it as being sort of the twin to uh, the, the poem I read earlier about my mother. And um, it's, it's a, uh, double the length of the poem and really just uses details from his life. Both my parents grew up in Oklahoma and so uh, that's sort of referred to here. And just about my relationship with him, you know, um, I thought that I would write a memoir about having being gay and having a gay father. <laughs> but as soon as I finished this poem, I thought, well, that's all I'm going to write about that. <laughs> uh, so um, and I recognize that some of the language in my poems can be a little bit rough. <laughs> uh, but I just hope that it's clear that those kinds of tonalities are seen as being uh, necessary to bring out the deeper emotional, experiential, and imaginative issues that my poems are really about, and not uh, some kind of shock value thing. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, so. that, that's the way I took it when I read it, so uh, whenever you're ready. Okay. To have a choice. I balanced on the edge of what would be my father's deathbed, my body, 50, no, 3 million years old. His delicate, gray, desiccated face. His beady, twinkling eyes, blades. In that handsome head, he could do algebra. Favorite music, Stan Kenton, Busoni's transcriptions. Once he described hearing waves of sound at the Palladium. We'll never talk about it, I thought why we both just masturbate with men and how. I'd hoped to relate to his history, tortured on a farm during the Dust Bowl, the Depression, and thereby understand perhaps not being open, honest, out, quoting, blaming all your fucking troubles on your wife, writing the family myth, that she was crazy trash if she complained she wasn't getting any sex. He beat her meat black and blue, but he couldn't stop cruising observatory parking lots. 
essentially the doctor told your dad's starving an option is a feeding tube to his stomach he sighed no i don't want a tube i'm okay with what's happening it's good to have a choice picture my poor mother riding spaceships dehydrated comatose spilled across the kitchen floor in panama in moonlight on a beach he laughed watching me trek into the dark wet rainforest chortling like a tree frog sunday morning when the nurse called i clung like my refrigerator magnet monet's water lilies to a friend a candle sunk in the black pool behind my closed eyelids an orphan now an only child childless worthless i swear people poets worry bang our planet's drying drowning dying we're terrified of scarcity to tell the truth the whole truth nothing but the truth to the future you i guess so help me so as i'm listening to you read this uh chris and i'm thinking back to the title oath and you're talking about truth uh, i'm just wondering uh, how hard it was uh in your life uh for both you and your father to come to these truths that you're talking about in this particular book. It was very difficult, a big struggle. Very, it took a lot of uh, time in therapy to sort of sort out the strands of it. And, um, uh, um, and uh, my father was very communicative in general with me, but not about these key issues. And uh, when he passed away, I just felt the absence of the kinds of, uh, honest conversations we could have had. Uh, but, you know, his life was very complicated and it's hard to talk about it. <laughs> Those difficult things with a child, I'm sure. So, um, all right, well, look, these are, um, these are wonderful. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to get into, uh, another couple of reads with Allison and Chris. We've got the writing life segment and then we've got, uh, some final reads. Uh, so listeners, please stay with us. Hey listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast, uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. 
For 98 years, the Charlotte Riders Club has continued to offer a supportive riding environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, I'm back with uh, Christopher Davis uh, and Allison Hutchcraft, and we're talking about their uh, poetry books, uh, Oath uh, and Swale. And uh, we've got uh, a couple more readings we're going to do here before we get into the writing life discussion. Uh, Chris has got a piece called Atman, and Allison's got a piece called uh, Swale, which, hey, you know, she's got a book called Swale, so that that's good. She's got a poem <laughs> by the same name. But we're going to start out with Chris uh, with Atman. Chris, tell us a little bit about this poem that you're about to read. Well, uh, the title is the uh, ancient Sanskrit Brahmanic word for soul, basically. Uh, and um, so I really wanted in this poem to just sort of uh, create a picture of uh, physical experience leading into spiritual experience. So it just goes from being in a relaxed summer uh, location to uh, just taking emotion and imagination to a, a little bit of a more sort of spiritual place. And uh, uh, so it's just an aspect of uh, so many different kinds of religion uh, that make that transition. And so that's really what this poem is about. Atman. I flop my body redolent of coconut, my sweaty, oily, selfish pig, my horny, dirty little spot on time my heavy but fun burden, awake, baked, down, as if to feed the bears, atop a picnic table's hot, hard pine. Overhead, a dome of leaves, neon green, noon suffused, shaking, paisley shadows, cool, frail, spectral, dry, caressing my closed lids, tracing circles, X's has me between earphones thinking splinters jabbing my bare back wow this bower echoes a basilica a womb a bowel my weird queer soul a spark my first light my birth that after image held tended read to deep within this damp flaming skull 
aiming past the sun, prefers to use lust secretly, quietly, the boy that can enjoy invisibility, loves to project joy higher, zap apart tomorrow's clouds trying to break out lightning, rain. That's nice. And you've got the uh, in italics here, the boy that can enjoy invisibility. Yes. Uh, those are lines taken from uh, James Joyce's Ulysses. Uh, in the very first uh, part of it, uh, the poet Stephen Dadalus is thinking about the death of his mother. <laughs> and um, I love that book so much. And so uh, uh, that's just a very beautiful passage in Ulysses. And so I just borrowed those lines and um, uh, I, I put them in italics so people wouldn't think that I just completely <laughs> stolen them. <laughs> That's right. That's great. After all, the book does say oath, right? I mean, you got, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So thanks for that. We're going to do, um, uh, Allison, you've got your poem here, Swale. You've talked about uh, the meaning of Swale from the beginning. Anything else you want to say to set this uh, particular poem up? Um, yeah, just that um, this poem in particular really grew from a specific place, a specific landscape. Um, in 2018, um, from about January to early May, I was um, an artist resident um, at the Sitka Center for Art and Ecology, um, which is perched um, just above the Salmon River estuary um, in Oregon. Um, north central kind of Oregon. And it's a really remote place. Um, I was in a cabin. I had my little attached uh, writing studio. Um, but for most days, I was alone, um, took a lot of walks. And um, this poem grew from kind of accumulated observations I had made of that place over those three and a half months. Um, and I, I felt quite sure that I was going to write a poem titled Swale um, during my time there. And so I just waited. I, I observed, I walked, I looked around a lot, um, wrote notes down, and eventually eventually the poem came. So I, I felt very lucky. Um, but so, so this is Swale. In my winter by the sea, I fashioned a new habit each day walking to Crowley Creek through mud and leafless alder, their branches cupped by the plush green of mosses and rolling beds of sword fern, whose serrated edges thrust extravagantly into cold and humid air. The creek fed the estuary, which in turn fed the sea, and I like to see how far up the tide had reached or how far it had receded. The marshy banks transformed by that lunar clockwork on which my hours turned. Water called slack, like the grip on a rope loosened, at which point the river would swell and still the brackish tide having expanded the limits of the creek, submerged grasses swaying like the drowned hair of a doll. Cold and hard and clear. The water looked like the creek I felt in me, 
Day after day, I watched gulls float like wooden toys, rocking on the unsteady surface, and studied barnacles clasped to rocks, the shell-white skeletons of small shoreline animals, discarded limbs of driftwood. Swale also meaning a depression, a low place in the land. The sour smell once the water has drawn back, unmasking river sludge and battered sea debris. Luminous blue valella with their fan-like sails, hollow carapaces of crabs picked at and cleaned. When I swale, I cannot tell border from border, land from water. I feel the loam of day crumble. Washed up what's left, an accumulation of silt or sand sifted, rubbery tendrils of seaweed dotted with notches like taste buds inflamed. Sometimes I think love is swale and sometimes sadness, how each comes in like a tide, how each alters the bodies beneath. Heart, be complete. Come out of your grave light. It was decades before I was alive when the estuary was diked to make more land for pasture. The water no longer water then, but fields of sown grasses for the cows to eat. How they, too, must have tasted it. The memory of water buried in the new green shoots. The verdant nourishment still tasting faintly of brine. That's nice, Allison. Uh, makes you want to go take a walk uh, on a beach somewhere. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's do this. Let's... Um, Let's talk writing life just a little bit uh, with both of you. And since we're doing poetry today, I think we should start there. Um, I want to talk poetry and teaching, but first poetry. Um, and I'll start with Chris. Chris, uh, what draws you to this uh, uh, to this form of artistic expression? Well, I think poetry is by far the most emotionally engaged and intense uh, kind of activity that I know <laughs> And I just think it's incredible when you're even reading poetry, but writing poetry, uh, the way that the act of creative engagement and imaginative contact just uh, pushes you into new realms, like, like, uh, like love, like a relationship with another person, really. I think poetry just, um, it, uh, it's kind of it has a quality of magic <laughs> to me in the way that it transforms the given into the new. Um, uh, just the way that poetry is really sort of the opposite of journalism, where uh, the task of the writer is just to record what is seen um, and what is known. 
I think poetry does the opposite of that. It, it, uh, the task of poems is to create something new. And it's just very, very uh, transformative, I think. Mm-hmm. Allison, what about you? What, what, what is it that you love about writing poetry? Yeah, I, I love what Chris said, that sense of, um, you know, with each new poem, both as a reader and as a writer, you're going into this new place. And there's mystery in that and transformative power and um, also no easy answers. Um, mm. So I, um, I really like that, even though poems are rhetorical and can have arguments um, and sort of prove and show things, that they also are incredibly complex, um, that they kind of, I think, lie in liminal spaces where there are not um, where there just aren't easy answers for things. Um, so I, I love the way that, um, a poem might grow from some, some thought or feeling that's not fully formed or some image that sort of is haunting the mind. And I have to sort of work on the poem to, to figure out why that's caught my attention, right? Why it's kind of stayed in my mind for so long. Um, and I, I love that. And um, the poems I love reading most tend to be ones that make me feel as if I'm experiencing another mind's interior life unfolding. Um, and that is such an intimate, really magical, as Chris described, um, space to be in. And um, to have your, your kind of heart feel like it's stopping to have your breath catch just from reading someone's poem is a, is a really a beautiful thing. So. Yeah. And I really enjoyed listening to it um, on the show here and listening to other people read their poetry because I don't always know when I'm reading it to myself, you know, what the author, the poet intends, but to hear, but to hear you read it and I'm watching along as you do it, I'm going, Oh, okay. I see now where we're going here. It's very interesting, but picking up on this theme of no easy answers, um, a little bit of a process-related question. I'd like to know where your muses hang out. Uh, so, Chris, starting with you. Uh, well, I never have inspiration. <laughs> I just start free writing. Well, actually, it's not true. Uh, something will catch my my eye. Maybe a sound, uh, a, a sensory experience, like seeing something, and I think, oh, that's good material, and I'll I'll write it down. But I don't know, as Allison was saying. I don't know why I liked it so much. Uh, and I don't have an idea of what the, the, the future poem is going to be a quote about end quote. <laughs> uh, and then, um, I just work the material, just, uh, free associate, uh, build up ideas, uh, work on the description to try to get as much, uh, as much presence from the first experience onto the page as possible. And just, it takes a long time just to stay in that creative process until uh, something starts to happen. And I feel like, okay, this poem is really coming into its own. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it's very exploratory. <laughs> so that's great. Now, now, Allison, for you, I get the sense that uh, your muse kind of followed you around to the coast and into these places with these beautiful landscapes. But can you write in other locations as well? Or how do you, how do you, how does your process work? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, place, as you described, um, is a big part of it. Um, I think that 
walking, um, especially when I can be somewhere pretty far from the city, um, helps create, helps sort of sieve out the, the mess in my head, um, makes me more alert, um, allowed to, to notice more. Um, but I also am really, um, poem, a lot of poems come to me through reading, um, sort of an exploration, but through, through books, through language. Um, I have a long sequence in my book that, um, that thinks about the extinct dodo bird. Um, and of course I could never see the dodo or go to where it, um, where it lived Mauritius, which is, um, far off in the Indian ocean. Um, and so I, I first sort of saw an image of the dodo, which we all know, um, and it sparked something in my imagination. And then I read everything I could about it, including really old facsimiles of texts from the 17th century, old drawings of it. Um, so in a way, I was sort of wandering through those old historical texts as in some ways I might wander through Oregon's um, seaside, but um, in each in each experience, either walking or reading, I'm sort of slowly accumulating um, different details or um, building upon something that that caught in my mind to start with. Now I know Allison that you teach poetry and creative writing, uh, Chris. I think you've probably taught those before. I'm not sure what courses you're teaching now, but I like to talk to to guests who appear on the show about their teaching when they are teachers because. It seems like you store up these life experiences and then you get the chance to share them with young writers. And I'm just curious, uh, you know, what are some of the things you tell your students uh, on the first day of class and then on the last day of class? Chris, we'll start with you. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, I tell them uh, this is a chance to uh, <clears throat> Uh, share with each other our uh, deepest, <laughs> most really uh, prime, uh, to bring out our, our interiority uh, to ourselves and to uh, discuss the poems in progress with our classmates uh, and um, uh, that we need to be brave, that it's, uh, it's, it's, frightening. <laughs> There's no way around it. Uh, and extremely exciting. And so I just say, um, just be patient with yourself. Uh, it's, it may not be comfortable, but we'll see as this three month semester goes on that, uh, it, you'll, you'll feel that you're, um, growing from this, uh, sort of vulnerability and excitement. Uh, that's, that's great. How about you, Allison? Um, yeah, I, I love, Chris, what you said about bravery. Um, I think it requires that um, to be in a place and not only write poems, but share them with others. Um, and I, I think I tried to start with describing how that bravery doesn't need to require any great gregarious feats, um, but that it is brave simply to, to notice um, the world around you, that your daily life um, and the memories that sort of permeate that daily life, that those are very much the stuff of poetry. Um, 
And I hope that 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 lends students a certain kind of confidence, um, knowing that their life in all of its many different parts um, is very much the subject of poems and that only they have that unique way of talking about that life, both the imaginative life and and the lived life. Um, So by the end of class, I hope to say, you know, that we that we had these months together um, as poets. Why do you teach, Alison? I um, I really love love teaching, and I think I loved being a student so deeply. Um, I wasn't always the best student, of course, but I loved um, being a student. I loved the way that um, certain teachers were able to make me feel as if the the world had just opened up right there in the classroom. Um, and it's a really amazing thing to be in a space with um, a, a sort of whole swath of different people um, making something new right there, you know, making something new and how you're thinking about a text or how you're thinking about the world. Um, I always wanted to be like those, those teachers that moved me so much. I'm really far from that. Um, but uh, I, I like that feeling that you're creating something with other minds, you know, in the moment. Um, and I love the relationship I have with my students, reading their poems, coaxing, encouraging them along, um, helping them feel like they have something, something to say and something to share. Um, and not feeling alone in that process. Now, Chris, you and I, you know, we're older than Allison. You've been teaching for quite a while, and uh, I'm just curious about why you've stayed with it. You know, what is it that draws you to teaching, and why why do you love it? Oh, I think so much of what Allison said is exactly how I feel about it, about teaching. I mean, we really have such a beautiful chance to see uh, students at uh, just their most, uh, a kind of intelligence that I think is just beautiful to witness and to encourage. And um, even students who might not go on to become creative writers after they've taken the class, uh, still it's just wonderful to see what this kind of educational experience uh, means to them. And they're very appreciative of it always. And uh, I think just knowing how it uh, will affect their uh, intellectual uh, development uh, as life goes on is, is very rewarding. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do a little reflection with this next question here. All writers, whether they realize it or not, are learning every time they publish something. Uh, the further you go along, the more you learn, even if you don't realize <laughs> that you're learning. But... You've both been published. Um, You've been writing for a while. You're teaching. If you could tell your younger writer self something valuable that you've learned uh, through this journey that might help her, Allison, what would it be? I think um, to be more patient. Um, I mean, I'm very slow as a writer, um, and it's... It takes me a long time to write a poem and a really long time to write this book. Um, but to not be hard on myself about that, um, to be patient and to 
focus on um, to concentrate one's energy um, on what's most important, right? Um, there, there can be a fair amount of distraction in our world and um, a fair amount of distraction with um, worries about publishing or not or this or that kind of um, uh, award. But um, that, that, of course, is just noise. Um, it's not part of that really intimate creative experience. Um, and so I, I would tell myself to kind of like calm down <laughs> and just, uh, just, just be patient and um, keep doing what you love. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. Chris, if you could advise the younger Chris uh, about something you've learned uh, that would help the younger Chris uh, in his writing journey, what would it be? Well, let's see. I would say uh, to be patient and to, to see that uh, all life experience and all reading experience goes into the poem eventually, just not right away. Uh, I used to think, oh, God, I'm wasting my time. I can't be uh, reading this history book or, or spending hours riding my bicycle. Maybe that was a little bit of a waste of time. But, uh, but finally, it all comes together into a poem. But just that the poem is the ultimate uh, and the rare event um, that uh, uh, I think uh, to, to just really honor the, the, the time, the, the really rare times when a poem does come together and all the life experience does cohere into something, but that it will happen and uh, uh, that everything you think and feel ultimately gets part, to be part of your your poem. <laughs> yeah, that that's good advice. Uh, we've got uh, Tony Abbott, who is on the show this season. He was just inducted into the uh, uh, North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame and uh, just, just a great poet. And I asked him a similar question. He talked about the most important thing that a poet can do is live life mm -hmm. because that's where the inspiration comes from to write, you know. And you've just talked about that, Chris, and you have too, Allison, to some extent when you talk about patience, because you've got to be patient. You've got to live life. You've got to you've got to experience those things that are going to help you then write what you are going to write, whether it's in poetry or prose or whatever it may be. So, all right, well, just a, just a final couple of questions here before we do our final reads here. Um, uh, Allison, what do you hope readers take away from uh, from your book, Swale? Oh, my. Um I mean that the the most amazing thing would be if any reader feels um, that sort of uptake of breath that I sometimes feel when I read a poem I love. Um, that for a moment you might feel um, maybe a little a little bit less alone, perhaps, or just that um, maybe for a moment you see something in a new way. But that would be a gift. Yeah, that's great. How about you, Chris? I'd like a reader to feel that uh, this this book, uh, these poems, were sincerely written, um, right, wrong. They might not feel entirely comfortable with some of them. They might not. Uh, it might not directly connect with their life experience. But just that, as a as a uh, as a writing project, it uh, was not. Uh, conceived of and carried out in a uh, an uh, artificial way in some sense. And then, as Allison says, to feel less alone uh, 
from that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you might be surprised at uh, who it does connect with. Sometimes we are surprised by the number of people who say, you know, you were speaking, you know, my language there. You know, I had that same kind of experience. And it it kind of brings the world closer together to some extent. People are less alone in those circumstances. So, uh, all right, well, look, we got uh, two final reads here, um, one from Allison, one from Chris. And we're going to start with uh, – Chris, uh, it's uh, Allergy for an Alcoholic Old Queen. Uh, I love the title. <laughs> it sounds exciting already. Uh, t- t- do a little quick setup for that, and then we want to hear the poem. Yes, uh, this poem is a little bit longer than the other ones I've read. And uh, it started, I had this experience. I had this friend who, with whom I drank a lot, and then he got liver cancer and <laughs> passed away. And I went to his funeral, and All of this happened when I knew that my father would soon move to Charlotte. His health wasn't very, wasn't, he wasn't doing very well health wise. And so I think in a way, this poem was sort of a uh, prelude to what I was soon to deal with, with my father. Uh, And so, um, uh, and then I I finished the poem after my father moved here and died. So it's, uh, I think um, I was just, this this experience uh, with my friend sort of connected to my life, but I was able to have a little bit more, I think probably imaginative freedom because it wasn't directly a family relationship. Elegy for an alcoholic old queen. Oh, my travel agent, you probably were just a situational acquaintance, yet I felt sad as you died on a Wednesday on a crunchy, costly hospice room bed, your collapsed cheeks, that fake bright bronze of tanning lotion, your corny tresses, dyed blonde, ludicrously, defiantly, that very day, the day you passed away, snaking across the white blubbery pillow, your eyes flat, still, your mouth a hole, you can't keep trying to fill now. I looked down at your clear plastic wristband and it told me you were when I'm 64, a little older than I'd guessed. Nobody needing you, nobody feeding you, except to my greedy shock, your brand new best friend, your bipolar hairdresser, your primary caregiver, your sole beneficiary. Grabbing your delicate wrist, a squirrel bouncing along the amber-leafed limb of whatever variety of tree that was out there, I told you I love you. Not. The ultimate hello, Dolly regular. You always drank half price, understanding being triple tipping. I was tripping when you told me, bluntly, you had months well, weeks to live. You wept. Your whole life you had felt crucified, renting from your Christian mother, unable to come out till she kicked off. Then you seized the day, enjoyed champagne like Churchill every evening. Old fashions, Manhattans, slow, comfortable screws against the wall. I bowed into your yellow Lacoste golf shirt, pushed my pounding head through the tough little crocodile right above your heart toward your liver, 
my brain a station wagon stuffed with screaming kids spinning wildly on river ice, cracking. At your memorial, the minister got the kind of cancer wrong, bemoaned the scourge of lymphoma, mentioned the tenets of our theology, though nobody there believed a word of it. No, not the air traffic controller, not the buyer's agent, and certainly not him, the man of cloth himself, who plastered pressures his friends for blowjobs. A disc jockey balanced a small green airplane gin bottle on the marble urn holding your ashes. I wonder whether in silvery dawns that emerald glows. Afterwards, stumbling among the cold gray cement materials of the parking deck, I couldn't find my Toyota Camry. So, pressing the black button on our keychain, I made my baby honk, honk, his sobbing echoing incessantly like the voice of that old witch inside the room across the hall from yours, barking, Becky, 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 until I saw them, the red brake lights blinking, and with my thumb I pressed again, shut that fucking honking up, the penultimate sounds of your rough croak, your word. Can't do much about dying, fading from living memory, slowly. Uh, that's wonderful, Chris. Thank you for reading that. Uh, Allison, you've got uh, one left as well. It's uh, Alice Among the Graves. Yes. Um, so there's a figure I named Alice who appears throughout the book um, in different settings from Key West, where this poem is set, to the Cloisters Museum in New York, to mountain forest and neighborhoods. Um, so, of course, I, I think of Alice as a, a kind of version of myself, um, but also as a character um, and therefore apart, apart from me. Um, and in this poem, um, She's in an old cemetery in Key West, Florida, and she's taking in the air, the light, the setting, um, but also thinking about history and uh, thinking about the dead. Um, and this poem appears at the very end of the third section of the book, before the final section about the dodo. And I've always felt that the character of Alice is sort of dissolving into um, into the poems about that extinct bird. Um, that, and this is sort of her send off. Um, so Alice among the graves, the headstones, they crumble, they buckle and lean. It must be how things breathe here, each mouthful of salt. The cemetery tries it's best to be serene with its benches and historic plaques, the palm trees that rise on thin, unknotted spines. All those squat iron gates hemming in the family plots, they can't keep anything out, not the lizards or birds, not the brazen carpet of weeds. Much worse than storms 
are the gut-heavy iguanas crashing down from trees. They like to nest under the graves, heaving accordion-like legs, meaty and strange, to scuttle between the concrete blocks and lay small seas of eggs in the crumbs. Half a mile away on White Street, Civil War soldiers killed by yellow fever lie unmarked in a yard, a bevy of roosters crowing above them in the grass, kicking up dirt and leaves. What the dead wouldn't give for something promised, starboard or boat sink, the bleached tide streaming in. So Allison, you've been to Key West? Yes, um, I was very lucky to go down there for a conference, um, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago, something like that, yeah. Yeah, you did have the key lime pie, right? I did not. Come no. on, you can't, <laughs> have you, to can't, go again. <laughs> you can't go to Key West without having the key lime pie, so you have to go back, you have to go back. All right. Well, look, I've enjoyed uh, having uh, both of you, Chris and Allison, on the show today. Listeners, there's going to be information in the show notes about both of them, links to their uh, books. There's going to be some photographs, uh, more information about them as as, as, uh, poets. And uh, I just want to thank both of you all for uh, being on Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Thank you, Landis. Thank you. It's been great. Great. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.